Welcome to Back to the Basics with Pastor Jason McClendon. This program is sponsored by Crossroads Christian Fellowship, a non-denominational, conservative, and evangelical church focusing on returning to the mindset of believers in the New Testament church. The acronym BASICS, in the name of the program, stands for Believing and Sharing in Christ's Salvation. We are disciples making disciples who make disciples. And now, here is the message. So, the reading for today is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 40, but that's a big chunk, so I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. But what we're going to talk to uh, talk about today is the trip to Bethlehem. As we're going through the Gospels, the birth of Christ is an important part of this. Now, some of this you've heard before because we've talked about this at Christmas a couple years ago, but the story is important to remember. And I had uh, one of my former pastors, I remember he was telling us in church one day that he's got a very close friend who's a Jewish rabbi. And he asked my pastor friend that if he really believed in the Bible, he asked him if he read the Gospels at least once a month, all the way through. And he said, well, no, I, I don't. He said, if, if this is what you really believe, the Gospels aren't very long. You should be reading them at least once a month. So I think coming back to this story after I preached something very similar two years ago is okay, right? That's <laughs> 24 months in, more than 24 months, actually, in between. All right. <clears throat> the first part is just one through uh, one through seven, and then I'll chunk it throughout the sermon. So in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was the time for the census that was ordered by Caesar. And people were expected under the Jewish custom, not necessarily by Roman law, but under the Jewish custom, to travel to their ancestral home in order to be registered for these uh, the, the census that would take place. So if you remember, both Joseph and Mary had family leaves that went directly back to David. So the city of David is actually Bethlehem. It's also the birthplace of King David. But note that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now there have been some questions as to whether or not this, this dating is correct because people will look back through historical records and some statements made by some scholars will say that Quirinius wasn't actually the governor of Syria until around 10, day, uh, 10 years later. And, uh, and that's, that's true, but it's not the full story. It's not the full picture. A careful study of the Greek, number one, indicates that this translation into English can be conducted a couple of different ways. The first one, the most common rendering, actually, is that uh, it says this was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria, which is what I just read. That's the most popular one. But it could also be rendered as this was the first census before Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
Or it could also be this was the first <coughs> census while Quirinius was a minister of Syria. So when we translate the language from, from one to another, sometimes words like governor, minister, etc., because minister is a political position, sometimes those can get confused. Now, this could mean potentially a mistranslation of that title, but not of the responsibility itself. And additionally, according to a gentleman by the name of Mark Strauss, who is an, an academic commentary writer, religious academic commentary writer, he focuses on Luke. He says that there is some scriptural or inscriptural evidence, rather, that Quirinius was actually the governor of Syria twice, with a break in between where somebody else was a governor for several years, but he started his second time as the governor in office in 6 AD. So that matches up with what other scholars are saying, that he was governor as of 6 AD, but he very well could have been governor before that. There's also evidence from the inscription discovered uh, in back as far as 1764 in a place called Tivoli that said that, that Quirinius actually held office as a military governor, not a civil governor, but was a military governor during that time when it says Quirinius was governor of Syria. And he was responsible for subduing a group called the Amanodenses. I don't know if I pronounced that right or not, so we'll just assume that I did. Amanodenses. And that it was very common at that time, especially in areas where there was strife, military and civil, where you would have a military governor and a civil governor at the time. So however that works out, the Bible isn't wrong just because a couple scholars say, well, Critias wasn't the civil governor until 6 AD. And all of this probably took place approximately 10 years earlier, right? About 4 AD is when we think that Jesus, or BC is when we think Jesus was actually born. Remember, there is sufficient evidence in the Bible, sufficient evidence in the Bible to prove that it's true. And while archaeological evidence doesn't always prove the facts of the Bible because there's a lack of evidence out there, Again, I'll, I'll, I'll say, because I know I've said this a lot, there's nothing in biblical record that has ever been disproven by archaeological record. Never. So that's pretty strong by itself. <clears throat> the biblical record has been referenced many, many times, and, and the historical facts that it uses, neither historians nor, or, nor archaeologists have ever been able to, to say that these facts are wrong. All they can say is that we haven't found additional external evidence for them. And in many cases, people have admitted the validity of the historical records of the Bible because they have found archeological or other historical records that indicate them to be true. And that's the case in every aspect when I have investigated this further. And when I've asked other people, if they've ever found evidence to the contrary. When they claim they have, I ask them to show it to me, nobody ever can. So the biblical record is true. Now, in our Christmas stories, when we, when we picture Joseph and Mary traveling to Nazareth, generally it's just a tool, right? You see these pictures, and if you look in your bulletin, there's a, there's a, it's not an actual photograph, by the way, just in case anybody's record, uh, is looking at that, but there's, there's this drawing of, Mary and Joseph on a donkey traveling to Bethlehem. That was a trip of about 90 miles one way from where they lived. And it would have taken about five days to walk under normal conditions. Now remember, 
people back then were much hardier and they walked a lot more. And when they traveled, it wasn't like today where for some of our young folks today to travel 90 miles might take them a month, right? Back then they did it all the time. So we have to remember though that Mary was not only pregnant, but expecting. So it might have taken a little bit longer than what we're thinking, right? <clears throat> but they probably traveled with other people. There was probably groups of people, and maybe they would meet up in different parts of the road as different roads came together, because the Romans had a pretty good road system. The, the roads would come together, and they were going in the same direction, so they would band together to protect themselves against bandits and hoodlums that would be out there attacking people traveling, especially during events such as this. Now, one of the curious parts of the narrative is where it says that Jesus was laid in the manger because there was no room for him in the inn. The NIV translation, which is the one that I read just a little bit ago, and I, I like the NIV for some aspects and in other aspects I don't. This is why we have to either go back to the Greek or the Hebrew for the Old Testament or use multiple translations and, and, and try to use word studies to see what, what are we really saying because as we translate again from Greek to English, sometimes that translation is lost, the, the meaning is lost, rather. So the NIV translation says, which I believe is correct here, it says there was no guest room available for them. Again, most translations say there was no room for them in the end. But what does this mean? Well, first of all, there probably weren't any inns in Bethlehem at that time. The inns as we know about, like we think about the inn that Jesus described with the Good Samaritan, that was an inn, that was a place where, where people would go and they would pay to get a room to stay the night or more than one night if necessary. But in Bethlehem, there wasn't anything like this. It wasn't a forerunner to a hotel. Uh, we have to remember that there were probably only about 100 people living in Bethlehem all the time at that time. Now, it got bigger when the family members would come in for things like a census. But where would people stay? They would stay in a guest room in someone's house, a relative's house, not an inn like the Good Samaritan Inn. So what we're talking about when we think of this guest room in someone's house is, uh, think about it like a two-story structure where the family would sleep upstairs and then the bottom floor was split by the wall between the cooking area where you'd have some eating in that side as well, and then an area where maybe you kept the animals, which we refer to as a stable or a barn. Not what we think of as a stable or a barn today, like on a farm, you have your barn out there, it's a totally separate building, but it's part of the ground floor of the house in which they lived. And the manger, if you don't know, was simply a feeding trough for the household animals. It's where they would put the food so the animals could eat it because they were right there on the bottom floor of the house. So to allow somebody to sleep in that area would have kept them out of the elements and it would keep them safe from the wild animals. But it would also have been considered insulting and disrespectful. Again, many scholars believe that Bethlehem at that time only had about 100 full-time residents. So there weren't very many people there. And with only about 100 residents or so, there probably weren't very many houses. And if a lot of people were traveling back to Bethlehem where they lived, again, they were staying with relatives. 
Now, I want to bring in a little bit of speculation here. And, and to be clear, this is my opinion. There's no biblical support for this at all. Okay? But when we try to think about uh, the, the context, we think about what's going on at that time and, and how all of this would have worked together and why it would have worked in this aspect. I personally think that Joseph and Mary were treated as outcasts. And, and the reason is because she was obviously about to give birth. Now, Joseph had already taken her as his wife. But it was after people already knew she was pregnant. People talked. People gossiped. They were going back to be with their relatives. She obviously got pregnant before she and Joseph were supposed to have consummated their marriage. And people knew that. So, I think that when they got there, the reason that there was no room for them in the end, so to speak, was because everybody said, we can't have you stay in our house, but you can stay down with the animals. They believed that Mary had committed adultery. Joseph had simply forgiven her for it. So that whole situation we talked about last week, the, the tenseness and the stress, can you imagine what that would have been like going back to your family and having everybody tell you, well, we can't have you stay up here, but you can stay in the barn. The, 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 the relative simply didn't want an adulterer who was about to give birth to be staying in their home. Although Joseph and Mary had been visited by angels, and they knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew he was the Messiah. And the fact that the vast majority of the people in the day were expecting a Messiah to come, they were expecting a warrior king. They were not expecting somebody who was going to be born in the lowly state of a manger in a stable, lying in this feeding trough, instead of being treated in somewhat royal status. <coughs> Starting in chapter I'm continuing chapter 2, going into verse 8 through 21. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good, good news. It is noise too, but I bring you good news that there will be great joy for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to this Bethlehem and see all these things that have happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, <clears throat> glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So when Jesus was born, the angel appeared to the shepherds that were out in the field. 
in this area right near Bethlehem and they announced to them that the Messiah had been born and they told them exactly how to find him. And the directions were simple. They would find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Remember, Bethlehem wasn't that big. So finding a baby lying in a manger probably wasn't very difficult. It was probably only one birth that night. Right? They weren't going in this hospital looking for a baby or into a town where there are seven hospitals looking for one baby out of the 300 that had been born that day. It was a very, very small community. So when the shepherds came looking, they probably found him very quickly. <coughs> and there were others who were in the area who heard what the shepherds had to say because they made known that they had seen an angel and what they were told. So it's quite possible that with the testimony of Joseph as to seeing an angel, and then the testimony of Mary as to seeing an angel, and then suddenly having these shepherds show up pretty randomly, at least so it would seem to the other people there, saying they had seen an angel, maybe some of these relatives started to believe these combined testimonies, and maybe there were some converts that very night. Again, pure speculation, because the scripture doesn't go into all that, but pretty powerful circumstances. Surely, at least some people were wondering, with all of this going on, who is this Jesus? Now, another point that I want to make is that the angel said this would be good news for all people, not just the Jews. The Messiah came for everybody. This highlights it, that Jesus came for the whole world, the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Now, remember, Joseph and Mary were very, very devout Jews, and they kept all the ordinances. So Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, just like was the requirement at the time. They went to the temple in Jerusalem to complete these requirements for the purification according to Jewish law. Purification period then lasted for 40 days, at the end of which certain sacrifices were made. The child was dedicated or presented to the Lord at that time. Luke chapter 2 going into 21 to 24, says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. The reason for the purification ceremony was because the woman was considered unclean after childbirth. Now, Jesus was born in perfection. But that doesn't mean that Mary wasn't still considered unclean after childbirth. But remember that Joseph and Mary were devout Jews. So regardless, it was expected of them. And second, they were destined to meet Simeon and Anna while in Jerusalem. The description of what they were to sacrifice also provides an indication that Joseph and Mary were poor, at least at that time in their lives, because the pair of doves or the pair of pigeons was what the people who didn't have much money would sacrifice at the temple. 
Simeon was a righteous and a devout man who lived in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he literally had been waiting for the Messiah because he'd been told by the Holy Spirit that he would live to see him. So he simply waited. From Luke chapter 2, starting in 25 to 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Again, not just the Jews, not just Israel, all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Note that this says the child's father and mother marveled at what was being said about him. They had been visited by an angel. They, separately, each of them, they had heard the testimony of the, the shepherds being visited by the angel. They have seen the confirmation from Mary's cousin Elizabeth. And they had all of this forewarning, but yet they were still marveling about what people were saying about Jesus. They go into the temple courts and they have this man Simeon come up that presumably they don't know. Even with all of this evidence, it was still overwhelming. They still believe it, but marveled at what they were learning all the time. And just to reiterate, Simeon also noted the salvation was in the sight of all nations, reflecting the sacrifice of Jesus for the entire world, which is incredibly important to remember. Starting in verse 36, it says, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Can you imagine having this confirmation after confirmation after confirmation about your child, about who this Jesus is? in such a short time. Another point to remember is that when, when they went to the temple, when they, well, let me go back. When they showed up in Bethlehem, they were probably disrespected, maybe ridiculed a little bit. But after they heard the stories, because presumably Mary and Joseph said, wait a minute, let's tell you a little bit more. And then these, these shepherds showed up and said, hey, man, these angels visited us out in the fields and told us this. So I think there was probably some of their family members who said, hey, let's, let's maybe look into this a little bit more. Maybe this, is, maybe this is real. 
So maybe some of those family members went with them for the consecration at the temple. I think that's probably what happened. They probably had these other family members with them. And as Simeon came up, and as Anna came up, these other family members are there hearing more and more confirmation. And oh, maybe Mary didn't do what we thought she did. Where do they go from there? Because sometimes people think there's a contradiction in the scripture to this point between what the gospels say about where Joseph and Mary took Jesus at that time. The Luke account in chapter 2, verse 39 through 40 says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew strong and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now this seems to indicate that they went to Nazareth immediately and then stayed there after leaving Jerusalem. This isn't necessarily true because remember, there's a very, very specific focus that, that Luke has in his story. And it's the focus is that this is fulfilled prophecy. This is in the line of, of David. But he's not getting into the whole aspect of going down into Egypt and all that. That's spoken about elsewhere. The Matthew account in particular talks about this birth narrative, but it doesn't mention going to Jerusalem at all for the consecration, because that's not the point of the story he was trying to tell. If you read a news article today in two different news sources talking about the same subject, they're not going to necessarily have all the exact same details. Some will tell you the details of what it is they're focused on, and this one will tell you the details of what they're focused on, written to different audiences for different purposes. The Matthew account simply says, that after Jesus was born, the wise men came from the east. Now I'm going to talk about the wise men later. But let me just briefly note that these wise men didn't show up immediately after Jesus was born. And the, the Matthew scripture doesn't say that they did. It just doesn't talk about what happens after Jesus was born. It just has the next thing as the wise men show up. It's most likely that the family went back to Nazareth for a short time after visiting the temple on the way home. Then they moved to Bethlehem, and they were in Bethlehem when the wise men came. From there, they moved to Egypt for several years, and then back to Nazareth. It wasn't uncommon for people to move around like that, especially when you've got angels showing up and telling you you need to move, which is what happened in these cases. Now, this doesn't make Matthew and Luke's counts contradictory. It just means they're focusing on different things. Neither one of them gave the complete story because that wasn't their intent. They focused on what was important to their narrative. And again, Luke doesn't even mention the whole story about the visitation from the wise men or the three kings or the magi, however we want to call them. So going back to Bethlehem wasn't even part of the story that Luke was telling, nor was the flight to Egypt. Now, why is it important to understand all this? Because when we're out talking to people about Christ and we're sharing the gospel, these are some of the things that the people bring up and say, well, I can't believe it because this story is fiction, because the gospel accounts differ. The gospel accounts conflict with one another. 
but they don't conflict. They're just different pieces of the puzzle. Different viewpoints focused on different party audiences with very specific information that they're attempting to pass on. So we've got to know it, we've got to study it. But we can't just study one in seclusion. We have to study all of them so we have that entire puzzle to put together with all the right pieces. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for the opportunity to be able to come here and learn about you, Lord. We ask that you just allow us to take your message and put it on our hearts and show us how we can pass it on to other people. All this we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, running a ministry is not free. There are many costs associated with developing and running programs, and we humbly ask for your support, especially if our messages have touched your heart or you believe they will touch the hearts of other people. We ask that you first pray about how God wants you to proceed, and then, if you feel led, help us focus on building the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian and you are not tithing anywhere, please consider tithing to us or consider gifting to us, however God leads. Remember, the money you have is God's money that He blessed you with to manage and to be a good steward. The money you tithe and gift to us builds the ministry of Crossroads Christian Fellowship and the International College for Christian Studies. The more financial support we receive, the more people we can reach. You can make this monthly contribution or one-time gift through PayPal by going to donationforchurch.com. You can also find other ways to donate on that webpage. Thank you in advance for your support, and may God bless you. Friends, I sincerely hope that you are already a follower of Jesus. But if you are not, you need to know that the Bible makes it absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. We are all sinners, and we all need Jesus. None of us can do it on our own. When we die, we will either go to heaven or to hell. But the ability to spend eternity in heaven is a free gift from God. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because He loved us so much, Jesus paid the penalty of death for our sins. He paid the price with his own blood, which means that we don't have to. That gift is free, and to receive it, all you have to do is recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Confess your sins to God, repent of your sins, in other words, you have to turn away from them, and turn your life over to Jesus, asking Him and allowing Him to be the Lord of your life. Remember, just because you repent and make Jesus your Lord does not mean you will instantly become perfect, but you do need to strive to model your life after Jesus. There are no magic formulas or special prayers to become a Christian. Just make it known to God. Just tell Him. He knows what's in your heart. Now. If you've made the decision to dedicate your life to Christ, which is often referred to as being born again, or if you've made the decision to rededicate your life to Christ, please let us know.
go to IamSavedByJesus.com and tell us about your decision. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to know if we can help you along the way. If you haven't made that decision yet, please pray about it, and we'll pray for you too if you let us know. This is the most important decision you can ever make in your entire life. It only takes a few seconds to decide, but the ramifications of your choice are literally eternal. Take it seriously. Remember, go to IamSavedByJesus.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. God bless. Well, it's almost time to go. Thank you for sharing this time with us. We are praying regularly for you and ask that you do the same for us. Until we come together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go now into the world and serve the Lord. Amen.